A few quick notes before today's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please rate it on Apple or other platforms where you listen. This is a huge part of helping us grow, and it's much appreciated. This series is produced by Authentic, a full-service brand and digital marketing studio that specializes in real estate development and leasing. We work with forward-thinking developers and property managers to create, and then capitalize on, demand for their properties. Our team at Authentic is built specifically for the commercial real estate industry, and we plug in every step of the way. Find out more at AuthenticFF.com. Finally, we want to hear from you. Email your feedback and ideas, as well as who else we should have on the show, to podcast at AuthenticFF.com. On this episode, I'm speaking with Mike Wolber, Chief Revenue Officer at Rent Dynamics. Mike leads the go-to-market teams of sales, account management, and marketing. He's the founder and host of the Modern Multifamily Podcast, a board member of the Silicon Slopes Northern Utah chapter, and a technology and multifamily enthusiast. Work aside, Mike is a passionate family man, proud husband and father of two. When not working or hanging out with the fam, you can find him on the running and cycling trails or working out in the home gym. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Okay, Mike, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Chris. Great to connect with you virtually. So let's kick things off with this unique background that you have. Growing up as a kid in Alaska, set the stage for the listeners about those early Mike Wolber days. Yeah, I, I feel really lucky to have grown up in such a almost like polarizing environment. I was born in Tulsa. Oklahoma, uh, but quickly moved up to Alaska. I was there from ages three to 18. And I always tell people that anything you can imagine in the state of Alaska that's legal, I've most likely done it. And feel really lucky to have been able to grow up there, you know, being able to see the Northern Lights, going fishing. My dad was definitely a toy addict. So any four wheelers or big thing you can imagine, uh, like, boats and all that kind of stuff. I've definitely done it, but really grateful to have had that experience as a kid. And I feel like it definitely has made me a storyteller now as an adult. Yeah, I would agree. I I mean, we go way back at least what, like three months now. And uh, I feel like I've already heard quite a few pretty incredible stories coming out of the the archives. You mentioned to me, it was like Alaskan plane rides, moose, grizzly bear, halibut, like all the Alaskan experiences. I think one of the interesting experiences came out of uh, your parents, actually. So like, tell the story about and piece together kind of the, the backstory of your family and kind of how you ended up up in Alaska and, and what that afforded you in terms of some kind of life experiences as a kid traveling around. Yeah, I have a, I have a really incredible and I feel really lucky to look back on the story because a lot of people think it's sad when they hear it surface level and they realize that it's actually life-shaping as I tell the story. My mom and my biological father got divorced when I was really young. I was about two and a half years old. And my mom's uh, father was in the oil industry, which is where the parallel between Oklahoma and Alaska is born because those are both very big oil rig uh, locations. And I was about three years old. My little brother, Caleb, was 18 months. My mom was recently single. So she moved to be with family and family at the time was in Alaska. And my mom was slinging jobs, doing everything she could to take good care of me and my brother. And uh, I'm about four years old and she's working at the front desk for a real estate company, a brokerage office called Jack White. 
And this flirty guy named Brian Broderick is always trying to catch my mom's eye and doesn't have to work too hard for it because he's a you know, firecracker, well-spoken guy. And eventually, you know, they go out for a date. My mom, being a, a protective mom, was very cautious, especially being a single mom of two. And a couple of stories that I think I'm just like really proud of is when they did finally get engaged. Uh, it was at a big company party where my dad won real estate agent of the year for the state of Alaska for the first time. This is maybe 1992, 91. And pretty quickly, they got married. And not many people know this, but while they were dating, my mom didn't want to live with him because she wanted to keep separation, not to have confusion for me and my little brother. And my dad really wanted her to be in a safe place. And so real estate, he bought a condo and took care of my mom me and my brother without us ever knowing it as kids. And that was one of the first places we lived together as a family. And the final thing I love to tell people is that when my mom and dad finally got pregnant in 1997, the prayer my dad always made was that he hoped it would be a little girl so that me and my brother wouldn't feel competition. And sure enough, they had a, a little girl. My sister's name is Bridget. And that was the end of the family story. And we grew up as a really happy family of five. And Outside looking in, you know, negative, but inside looking out, really grateful to have a, have a dad who chose me and have really feel grateful for kind of all of the traditional family experiences I definitely got to have as a kid. Mm. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and we both, I mean, we're both dads now and we've kind of been going through that ourselves over the last few years. It definitely, I could see how on the outside it would seem like that's, you know, kind of a sad story. But once you get into it, you realize all the nuance to it and, and actually truly how positive it is. So, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing. Of course. You know, there's so much great that comes with living in Alaska and you get all these experiences. And like as a young kid, you're like doing these things that other young kids, I mean, I certainly didn't do that, right? But there comes a point where you in your story, you realize that Alaska wasn't going to be for you. You wanted to leave, you wanted to pivot away from that, despite all of the good that came with it. What were your motivations and where did that sort of take you, begin to take you after that that period of life? There were a couple of things that I don't know if these are like Mike-isms, just who I was innately as a kiddo. But I look back and it was like really wise of some of the things I saw and realized young, ages, you know, 14, 15, 16. One is I always chose to work. Like my my parents were very successful. Um, I never needed to, but I don't know if it was the work ethic I inherited from my mom and dad or what it might have been, but I always chose to work for my own. And I spent a lot of my summers, my after-school evenings, creating businesses, working for businesses, and was always really driven to earn for myself. And kind of an anecdote in Alaska is you can really only drive up or down. There isn't really a west and east with, with like the road infrastructure. So I always felt somewhat isolated in Alaska, even though it's you know the biggest state in the US. And then the third thing is, you know, Literally, the state of Alaska is so light and then it's so dark. You have this incredible sun up at 3 a.m., sun down at 1 a.m. in the summertime. But then the opposite of that is how dark it is as well in the wintertime when the sun rises while you're at school at like 10 in the morning and it sets while you're at school at like 2 in the afternoon. And what I always tell people is that Alaska is literally and figuratively a, a pretty dark place. And that's my interpretation. Some other people have found and built great lives there, but I have a lot of friends from high school that you know turned to alcohol or drugs or other things you can just imagine, 
and I, I saw the writing on the wall as I was growing up. So for me, once I left for college, I studied in Portland. I was quite certain that I would never go back to Alaska. And sure enough, that's the story that I've written. Mm. And I remember you telling me that you were... So I'm based in, in Colorado. You, you said that you, you were originally thinking about ending up at the University of Northern Colorado. You said something about how you might have gotten too caught up in a little bit of partying and skiing and kind of living life up a little too much. And, and as you said... You kind of made this decision last minute, I think it was, to end up in Portland. And you did you have to beg the uh, admissions office to get in? Or what was the story there? I did. So my senior year of, of high school, I stopped playing basketball, all in on snowboarding. I was certain I wanted to go be like a pro snowboarder, right? And declared uh, to study business at the University of Northern Colorado in Fort Collins. It smells like cows, but it's a pretty cool school. Did that trip with one of my best friends at the time named Ben and then my dad. And kind of the latter parts of my senior year, I was kind of just having this like nervous anxiety that, you know, growing up in a conservative Christian home, growing up in a very conservative Christian school, that the exposure to all of real world all at once, like what would that do to a personality that is somewhat addictive? And did a very last minute trip, literally in the month of April, my senior year of high school, did five smaller liberal arts schools in the PAC Northwest. The last one we walked into is George Fox University and grabbed my mom's hand. I was like, this is the one. And sure enough, we had to go through the pleading process to ask for late admissions, got in, and the rest is history. Cool. That's really cool. So you had more of a, I'll I'll do air quotes, like more of a low-key college experience in Portland at the end of the day. And you ended up being recruited by a large company. And I want to get to that because I think this is a cool transition into, again, you have great stories. Some of the stories that you can tell about your early years as a professional. And I can't remember where these two things lined up, but one of them had to do with later in your collegiate years. I think it was a junior year in college. You were going through a transformation, I'll call it. I'll let you kind of walk us through that. But you were going through this transformation. And around the same time, you ended up meeting your wife while this corporate recruiting was taking place. So I feel like I'm asking you for a third time, but like walk us through how all of those bits and pieces ended up lining up together to kind of set the springboard into your professional career. So I, I have a few like life changing inflection points. And one happened in 2008 and another happened in 2010. And I'd say the third happened in 2014, which we'll get to later. And so the first one, my junior year of college, I'd gained a lot of weight. Backstory I worked for Best Buy manage the computer sales department uh, at store 539 up at Anchorage, Alaska, shout out. And really loved like sales, alignment to revenue, kind of translating technical needs into buying. And it's really where my passion for sales was born. And I created these like really deep relationships with a lot of like mid-stage adults. And when I went to college, I was like, how are we going to stay connected, guys? We've worked together for 40 plus hours a week for a couple of years now. And at the time, 2005, 2006, World of Warcraft was just being born. So we all sign up for it, get really into this online game. We have the crazy over-the-ear headphones with the mics. And my competitive like drive had already been born. And I went all in on World of Warcraft. I probably gained about 45 pounds the first two years of college. The clan that I was a part of was a top 50 in the world out of millions of people playing. And in 2008, nothing happened. Did not get broken up with, did not you know, fail a class, <laughs> nothing happened. 
but I got ready to leave for summer to go back to Alaska to work a landscaping job. And I threw away about a $10,000 gaming computer. I clicked delete on my World of Warcraft account and set this goal to lose 50 pounds. And I'll tell you something really quick is that my inflection point, if I had one, is there's a command in the game you could do backslash or command played. And it would tell you how much time you'd play this video game. And just doing napkin math in the three years I'd been playing, I'd spent a third of my life playing the game. 365 wow. days of playtime. Wow. And that was kind of my like wake up call, like exchanging time for value. What is my value really? And went home, changed just about everything I possibly could. Probably lost 40 pounds, not quite, quite 50. But the Mike Wolber that a lot of people know today as the athlete was really born that summer. Oh my gosh. That's an incredible story. For me, I don't have anything near that. But just to give a quick shout out to the uh, sister product of Warcraft. I was a StarCraft guy myself for for quite a few years. Plenty of uh, 3 a.m. evenings uh, rocking out some StarCraft with a couple buddies. But nothing, nothing in the top 50. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that. That's really cool. So around that same time, I guess just after that time, you met your wife. Uh, you were about 21 years old. She was 30. So she's coming in hot with some experience in the, in the landscape of, of your life. Um, but that was also around the same time you were recruited by, by Nike. You know, I think that was a, a really interesting, again, pivot point for you in your life that really opened the doors and opened your eyes to the professional world. What was that first step like in that journey? So really late stage in my final semester at college, I'd actually architected a plan to go back to Alaska, despite everything I'd said earlier, to take over my dad's residential real estate business so he could go full-time commercial. And I'd really developed the skill set for sales, for business, understood math and you know number crunching. And I was good in like the real estate arena. And so my plan was to stay in a house in Portland work for UPS who pays really, really great, have a fun summer with friends, and then transition sometime in the fall. And late April, graduating in May, we get this really rogue email to the entire business business school. There's maybe 110 of us graduating out of the business school saying that a big employer in Nike is looking for two full-time positions for a one-year contract. And they're opening up first right of refusal for applicants to be from our business school because one of our alum is a director in this team. Literally every one of us raises our hand and shuttles out to what becomes Nike. Knew nothing about it before we got out there. And there's two jobs on the line. And I did kind of a classic version of me, went all in and uh, got the job. Myself and a gal named Whitney, who's still there. She just celebrated 13 years at Nike or 12 years at Nike. And um, long story long, um, made it to Nike, got my first townhouse a week after graduating. I started two weeks after graduating. And literally within my first 30 days at Nike, the first person I had eyes for was April Hartley, who's now April Wolber. Cool. So this first job, you told me um, in our kind of prep call that you said... You ended up doing three times the work. You stayed up till 1am just crushing the job as hard as you could in true Mike fashion. I think this is a theme for this podcast and a theme for your life. But you said, they told you, wait a year, kind of go through the motions and then you know it'll, we'll figure it out. And you're like, no, no, no. I'm doing three times the work. And then you said in three months, you doubled your salary because of your performance. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I... 
I had this great job in that I was working for Nike, but it was an awful job. It was the most epitome version of black and white data entry. This is pre-API integrations. And I was taking data from an Excel spreadsheet that was being downloaded from one tool and manually entering into a version of MS-DOS, the second tool, to power line planning for the apparel division or vertical at Nike. And I remember like two or three weeks in sitting down with my manager at the time, Josh, who'd hired me. And without being like disrespectful, like let him know that this job was really, really painful and not what I was what I was interested in. And I just asked him, like, probably didn't use these words because I wasn't nearly as verbose then, but you know, career planning wise, like what's next? Like if I do good, what does a next step look like at Nike? And he said, if you work really hard, make it through this year, we'll do everything we can to like line you up for an analyst position to be a full-time part of this team, supporting one of the product division categories. And I didn't really lean too much into that. I just kind of accepted and said, sound good. And it's like one of the first times I realized that like my competitive nature was going to be like a career transformation vehicle for me because I didn't get mad, but I definitely got fiery with that feedback. And I said, well, what if this is me versus me? I didn't share this with anybody. What if I outwork everybody to the tune where it's like the scoreboard is just saying that this guy is the real deal? And we were measured on data points entered for a day. It was just a very black and white metric. And I was literally doing three times the volume of any of the probably 30 or so analysts on my team. And within about 65, 75 days, I was promoted to a full-time analyst supporting the equipment division. My comp doubled, got full-time benefits as a 21-year-old. And it really set the tone for my career at scale. That's incredible. And there's a quote that you said that I wrote down that that was something to the effect of to paraphrase, you know, if you're if you try really hard, you can pretty easily outpace the people in the workplace around you. And I think we see it every day, you know, with the challenges of hiring uh, these days. If you just do a little bit above and beyond, you know, you're really going to stand out. And I can imagine doing 3x what your peers are doing really allowed you to stand out quickly. So let's take a quick um, I'll call it a quick uh, tangent down a little rocky road gravel road towards a little place called Bend, Oregon. And we're headed there for a a destination wedding between you and your now wife. And I think this is such a cool story because it ties into where we're headed next and where things really kicked off in your career and multifamily. But the first thing you told me was, pull up Google and Google it. And what is it that the listener should go Google right now about this story? If you Google Wolber wedding, you will see me and my wife in a gloomy version of Bend, Oregon on June 7th, 2014. And that's where the viral wedding story was born. And so this includes BuzzFeed, Ellen, all the major outlets. I think you said almost 2 million reshares on BuzzFeed. Truly a viral moment for you and your wife. And all because of this ceremony that you were having in front of what was essentially an ongoing wildfire. Is that right? Yeah, so the the two bulls fire uh, went into effect the morning of our wedding. And by the time we got married, I'm standing at the altar and my wife is getting ready to walk down the aisle with her father, Stuart. And a fire ranger rolls up and says, stop the wedding. And our wedding planner, one of our best friends at the time, Stacy, rolls out there, pleads with him 
pulls out our officiant. Her name's Liz. And they come up with this plan that we have 10 minutes, then we have to leave. So we go from a 30-minute ceremony to a 10-minute ceremony. But we got to say I do at the place we'd initially picked. And then the most like beautiful thing ever happened and that all of our friends and family grabbed what they could, some chairs, some beer, some food, and relocated everything to a random public park. And considering the circumstances, no one was there. And we just partied the nights away in the center of Bend. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. And that was kind of the first, you know, one of the first times that you really got to experience Bend and sort of create, obviously, an incredible memory there at the time. Your wife also worked for Nike. So you're both kind of like, you had your eyes looking back towards Portland still. But at the time, the way the story goes is is your wife was unfortunately laid off. She got a, a great severance and it allowed you all to have this opportunity to figure out where you wanted to end up next. And that's really where multifamily comes into the conversation, which I think is such a cool tie into just the Ben story in general. So you ended up going back to Ben's, wanting to settle into a, a new community. And in true Mike fashion, the way I understand it is you said, okay, what can I do? How can I dive in? Where can I find work? And that's how you found multifamily. What are the cliff notes of, of how you actually like ended up at that first gig because it ends up being something pretty big. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's these two reactions you can make when something outside looking in is negative. And April getting laid off months before she hit her 10 years of tenure, which would have meant some pretty impactful things for her career. You know, we got about six months severance. And rather than that being like an oh no moment, it was a hell yeah moment for me. And what happened is that we spent the holidays just together, you know, no pressure. She she started a little business that actually ended up being pretty successful on Etsy that she eventually sold. And without really disclosing to her, as soon as I got back to the office after Christmas in January, this is January 2015, I immediately started looking for jobs in Bend just to see like, hey, what if I effort a little bit, what can we find? And the way that the cliff notes goes is that my parents over the holidays had had outside magazine on their coffee table. And that year, Outside Magazine had done 100 best places to work in North America. Of course, intersection of outdoors and a cool company. And let alone Bend, Oregon had three companies on that list. We wanted to be in Bend. Two were breweries that I wasn't interested in working at. One was this tech company. So I blindly dropped an application for a role I didn't know if I was qualified for. I'd never been in sales. I'd never worked in SaaS. And got a call from a recruiter, drove down there for a weekend, met the team. And by April, we lived in Bend. And what was the transition like to Bend in that first job? What was that? Was that a, a real like shakeup cultural wise? Or did you guys feel like you, you fit right into the new community? We felt like we fit right in. We were fortunate in that my parents owned a vacation spot in Bend that they rarely used. So dating, we spent a lot of time in Bend and I got to kind of flex a little bit like as if I had a vacation house, even though I did not have a vacation house. And so we actually stayed there while we looked for our first home that we eventually bought in June of that year. And one of the big things I like regretted a lot about my time at Nike is that I I never felt like I like reached my full full potential there in terms of stepping up and continually kind of creating opportunity for myself. And I found myself in a few opportunities, jobs that just sucked, if I'm being honest. And when I joined G5, it was like 
this like reality that I fell into that it was an opportunity to rebrand myself. And so when I joined, I was a totally different person. I was charismatic and I had gumption and I had drive and I found a voice early. And that's really where the tone for my career transformation of multifamily was born, partially out of desire, but partially out of, I think, joining the perfect company at the perfect size. Yeah. And, and at the perfect time, it sounds like. I mean, you told me that it felt like you entered hyper growth mode in the multifamily industry right out of the gate. And it went from, well, I won't tell the full story, but just a hundred people to a few hundred people very quickly. Um, your role from a sales engineer jettisoned very quickly to leadership positions. What was that like? I imagine that must have been like drinking from a fire hose, especially being brand new to the multifamily industry. What was that like for you getting into the to the groove at G5? It was a lot, man. And it was it was really different. Like you work for a big company like Nike and you know, 95% of what you do is pretty much invisible and it's very internal facing. You don't have exposure to senior level leadership. You don't understand how your role impacts the financials. So you don't really think about the financials at a company like that because you don't really care or are, are incented to really care to impact them. And what happens when you join like a, an earlier medium stage growth startup or scale up size company is you realize that like the way these businesses are built is like every role is important. And I think a couple of things like happened. We exited Volition and entered Peak, which meant a $75 million ingestment of growth capital. And then it became, oh crap, how do we grow to make sure that our investors get that four to five times return they want in four to five years? And along the way, pretty quickly, just being you know a learn-it-all and someone who's really a student is... I just saw that nothing mattered more to our CEO than revenue. And so as long as I could stay aligned to revenue, good things were going to happen. And that's really where the playbook was born. Yeah, dive into that a little bit more because I think this is important, especially for new, new folks in multifamily, new folks just at, at, a, at a SaaS company in general or a startup company in general. What you told me in our, in our pre-call conversation, I think really hit the nail on the head in terms of watching what the executive team truly cared about. Like, How can you be irreplaceable on a team and really thinking about that as an employee to consider what your leadership needs out of you and not just about like what you need from your company, right? What were some of those pillars that you were thinking through as you were diving into that role, which really helped you move up the ranks at G5? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the first things that I I found myself doing, and I still do it to this day, is almost just like observing where your exec team spends their time, and observing where where they spend their energy. And an example is like you know any growth company is going to have a monthly or a quarterly all hands or town hall type meeting. What are the things that are being talked about? Like new people new customers, retention, new products, like everything that impacts growth and the future. And I think for me, as I became someone who started getting involved in customer retention or customer save type conversations or big pitches for new business or providing feedback for areas that we could modernize like our product, became really clear that, that like what our executive team cared about more than anything was you know marketing, Sales retention and new products. So the more I could do to wedge myself into that, you know, that pyramid or that square, the better off I was going to be. And I think that's really where I think for me, like continuing to raise my hand, add value, 
be involved in the things that were at the most important end of the list really paved the way for me getting a seat at the table early and then just being able to create and then codify skill sets that have now become a huge part of my DNA. Yeah. And I think you said it really well when you said, I I wanted to make sure that I was in the need to have category. And that's something that really rings true too with what you're talking about here is paying attention to everything that's going on, but then making yourself irreplaceable and making sure that you are in that need to have category. Hey, listeners, just a quick reminder that today's episode is brought to you by our company, Authentic, the full service brand and digital marketing studio specializing in real estate development and leasing. If you weren't aware, I wanted to let you know about how our team adds value to all of your projects. Because Authentic has been architected with the entire real estate development lifecycle in mind, we sit in parallel with your strategy, marketing, rendering, digital, and leasing needs, beginning at day zero. To learn more about how we can help elevate your next project, or to keep existing projects stabilized, visit our website for more information at AuthenticFF.com. Well, G5 sounds like quite the trial by fire hose in the face, especially for those first few months. I think it tied in really well with your personality growth at Nike and kind of understanding who you were becoming as a young professional. That's really cool to hear how all of that stuff ties in together. We haven't even really tapped into the endurance athletic side of, of Mike, which if we have time, we can, we can get into that. But I want to shift in and kind of talk about your transition away from G5 to where, you're, where you are today, which is Rent Dynamics. What ended up pulling you away from that first really big experience in multifamily that has you now uh, being a leader at uh, Rent Dynamics? You know, one of the cool things and like the things I'll be eternally grateful for for G5 was six years at a business in this day and age is a long time, unless you're a founder. Like that is a really long time to be in a technology business for the average 10 years, you know, barely 18 months. And, you know, you think about the first year, you're paying the company back in the, the first year, maybe like they're just making an investment in you. The second year, maybe you break even. Third year is where you're really able to like, pay dividends for that company. And one of the things that I learned at G5 that's now part of my like mentorship to people that I talk to who are in like earlier mid-stage careers themselves is that one of the things that G5 did for me that I didn't realize until I left is it allowed me to really create these deep skill sets and to go up within a business. So I went from individual contributor to frontline manager to second line manager to vice president. And along the way, Develop this skill set, this personal brand, this clout that really gave me the ability to then transition into another business coming in as an executive. And I didn't realize that until the transition to Rent Dynamics happened. But does that make sense? It does. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. I, and I think, too, one of the things that you spoke to me about last week when I actually got to catch you in person is the the really nice cohesiveness across the multifamily industry. So I think like while you were learning over at G5, it sounds like Rent Dynamics was taking note. You were already sort of on that integration partner level with them, as it were. And it allowed them to sort of see your growth upward into that G5 stratosphere. And it sounds like that's really what ended up at least partially pulling you over to the Rent Dynamics team. Totally. So we'd we'd created an integration relationship. I got to know the two co-founders really well, Alex and Quincy. And I'd say like a couple of things that just like timed right is 
I knew a lot of their customers and their customers were so fond of Rent Dynamics. And that's like the greatest indicator of a good company. If they've got raving fans as customers, they're doing something right. And the second thing is that I've always thought of Rent Dynamics as being one of the best kept secrets in multifamily because we just turned 10 this last month. Mm. And we're still spreading the gospel to make sure people know about us. And what's so cool about that is that our company was you know, almost product-led for the first eight years, building great products, serving customers. And the flywheel was really through customer experience that we found new customers and grew. And in the fall of 2020, the two co-founders called me and they said that they were really getting serious about growth. They thought they could make room for me on the executive team. Alex stepping aside from sales to really own operations, me to come in and own revenue. And we ended up, you know, making a deal and ended up working out and moved here. And, you know, I'm 18 months in. We've more than doubled revenue since joining. And we're just now starting to see like my DNA in the business. And you see the long game that it takes to like really make an impact. But we're building a great company. Um, we've got great people, great customers. And uh, I think I'll be here for a really long time. Yeah. Well, let me uh, let me throw you a quick curveball if you don't mind, because I... I think it relates to some of the work that you're doing on LinkedIn, which I consider a very hot marketing space for the multifamily industry right now. I personally came across your LinkedIn post a few months ago and we ended up striking up a conversation around some of the content that you were posting and I was starting to post at that time. I always knew you as like the Rent Dynamics guy. I mean, so clearly what you were doing was working on behalf of Rent Dynamics. But talk to me about the role marketing and perhaps this. I guess I kind of think of it as a progressive mindset around marketing today has really impacted the way that you're finding that you're doing business these days. And and specifically, I'm thinking about your presence on LinkedIn and your willingness to connect and sort of collaborate back and forth. You know, it's, it's cool. There's this concept that Chris Walker, who's the CEO of Refine Labs, has really, I'd say, like put a spotlight on and it's called dark social. And it's really this concept of all of the things that your future buyers are doing that are borderline impossible to measure, you know, consuming content on social, participating in Discord or Slack community groups, listening to podcasts, you know, reading reviews, and all of this stuff is on social, but ultimately borderline impossible to measure from like an attribution perspective. And his encouragement to his audience that at this point is like massive is that the easiest path in marketing is the path that's easy to measure. You know, doing things like email marketing, tactical outreach, getting MQLs into your sales funnel and hopefully closing some of those as customers. And that still works even though it's like the way that most marketing's been running for a long time. The more modern way is to create content, to create value, to go build an audience and then to trust that when that audience is ready to buy, they're going to think of you and they're going to think of your company when the time is right. And then you can rely on the great sales process and team you've built to have the highest probability of success of turning that prospect into a raving fan as a customer. And without like vocalizing that a lot to my company, because that's not popular, right? That's different. I started just piece by piece doing it. Started a podcast, got active on social. As a leader who's doing it by example, my whole sales team is now quite active on social too. And I would say that we're probably the most visible company on LinkedIn, at least in the prop tech space. And my bet is that like the long tail of that is going to be that people know who we are, 
They're curious to learn more. They're a fan of what we're doing. They trust us because they see us being engaging, going back and forth. And the long tail of that will be customers that are really excited to be part of our team. Yeah. I feel 100% on the same page with you there. And, and one of the things that we have also chatted about is how, you know, kind of in this older mindset, most companies just really try to drive outbound. Like their, their marketing mindset is, is outbound, outbound, outbound. And, you know, where, where your thinking is inbound. Okay. How can I just get people coming to me? And you, you told me that, you know, you might have had one or two inbound leads, uh, to rent dynamics when you first started. And I think you said you're up into the 20, 25 a month now. Because people truly see you as a leader in the space and they see you as someone who's creating content with a lot of value. And I think that that going back to the immeasurable aspects of you know what this marketing is all about, I mean, that right there is a really great great way to say, hey, you know what, this this actually is working. And it's it's honestly been like one of the most important pieces and like getting the team right. Cause I recently hired Trevor Park, who you met last week. And Trevor believes deeply in content and experiences and these things that are hard to measure, but we're just like super aligned in that regard. And um, it makes us fun to collaborate with. I think it it's unique. It's something our competitors aren't necessarily obsessed with. And I think for us, like the long game of this will be a good, good impact. And it's also going to be good for everyone who participates because their personal brand will grow while they're here. And so whether they choose to stay here or to go find a new adventure down the road, they'll be that much more valuable to their next employer because they've built this really you know, immeasurably valuable platform. And so I really hope that anyone who's participating in it here at Rent Dynamics in five years can look back whether they're here or somewhere else and really be grateful for the fact that they really skyrocketed in the industry due to really doubling, doubling down on brand. Yeah. No, that's great. Let me transition a little bit. It's, I'm going to do- try to dovetail this. And, and Mike, I don't know exactly how to do this because I think it's a big question and I'm not going to put you on the spot and try to get a perfect answer out of you. But this is a topic that comes up a lot in multifamily and I would say commercial real estate at large right now, which is you know, thoughtful brand, thoughtful design, even really quality user experience um, and user interface design at prop tech companies. And this idea of uh, or this question that's posed often, which is like, does it even matter? Like if the tech is there, is that good enough? Or do things need to look good as well as function well? Do you feel like multifamily should care about quality design? Is is the industry moving in that direction? Or do you feel like we're going to be kind of in this churn for a while where as long as the tech is there, maybe there's less care towards the aesthetic side of it, if that makes sense. Have you ever logged in to Marketo? I have. Have you logged into HubSpot? I have. HubSpot's like, what, 50 times cooler looking than Marketo? Yep. And year over year, they're outpacing Marketo by a crazy percentage now based on all of the Gartner and G2 data you can get, even though arguably Marketo's tech is more flexible, more API friendly. HubSpot has outpaced them in such a tremendous way based on brand design experience. that They're the category leader, even though Marketo has the technology platform to win. I think it's the perfect example for PropTech. I would say that my short answer to your question would be yes, absolutely. I think brand matters in a big way. Brand to me is the first thing you think about when you hear the name of a company. And that's born from the experience that you've had, whether it's a property website, the first login to a piece of property technology software, and I would say that over the next few years, one of the coolest like transformations that our industry is going to experience is that 
the buyer is going to modernize because we're going to see Gen X, we're going to see Gen Z, excuse me, not Gen X, we're going to see Gen Z and millennials really occupy these like senior level leadership roles. And their expectations are going to be if you're not Uber and if you're not Lyft, you better GTFO. And I think it's going to really set the tone for us on the provider side to make sure that we're anticipating that and that we're intuitive and design forward. Otherwise, we're going to have a Marketo back end and a Marketo front end, and we're going to be totally caught on our heels. But I think that's where the opportunity is going to be on the technology side. Yeah, let's keep that going. Um, Before we start to wrap up, I want to keep this mindset of the, the modern buyer for a moment here. Let's kind of hold that in play. And first, take just a quick step back. So at Rent Dynamics, you play a really important role in the customer side of the business. Um, and if for listeners out there, if you don't yet follow Mike on LinkedIn, I'm sure you will by the end of this episode. Maybe you're already tapping the the follow button right now because uh, he puts out some great content. But what are you seeing out there? I mean, you just started talking about the design side of it, but what is the modern buyer looking for today? And and how do you feel like that's going to evolve just even in the next year, 2022 into 2023? By the end of next year, what do you think they're going to be looking for? How might that change across the multifamily industry? You know, I, I want to just like start by I, I hope the fact that I say modern buyer doesn't like make anyone feel insulted. Like my my perspective with this like analogy of the modern buyer is they don't really understand where the industry was 10, 15, 20 years ago. So they don't have the same level of empathy for someone who's been in the space since they were in college. They're 20 years into their career, but they vividly remember doing guest cards on paper. So for them, the modern tech feels incredible to them because they're used to the paper experience. Whereas the person who graduated college in 2013 has only operated you know, school professionalism on a mobile device. And I think that's, that's the inflection point. And I think that as part of that, I think one of the big shifts that we're seeing in our industry is that there's more technology to choose from than there's ever been before. And so we're really seeing our customers learn how to buy software, which is awesome. Investing in buying committees, using third-party consultants to really make sure they architect a process that culminates in the right problem being solved with the right technology. And I think the second thing that's probably more important is that our customers in the market at scale, especially the ones that are doing it well, they're listening to their teams and solving where the experience is broken, whether that's an internal experience or a prospect or resident experience. And what we're seeing is it just takes too many clicks to get things done in our industry. And if we can get to less clicks, more leads, less clicks, more leases, less clicks, more renewals, I think that's going to be the future. You know, Faster experience, automation and technology to prop up the technology so the humans can still do what they're great at. And I think that's what the next couple of years are going to be all about. Really cool. Yeah. Mike, as we, uh, as we begin to wrap up here, I want to get your thoughts around the future of Rent Dynamics, what you're excited about, what areas of multifamily you might be pushing into, trying to crack the code of uh, in, the, in the prop tech space. Um, where do you see opportunities for you and the team looking ahead? You know, I think as a as a business, we're going to keep scaling. We're going to keep growing. We're going to double again. We'll do it again. And that's going to present good challenges, hard challenges, fun challenges, career transforming challenges for anyone who's part of our adventure. I think we're going to see our company start to more 
you know, intelligently and thoughtfully harness, you know, BI and artificial intelligence to do the same thing internally that we're also trying to do for our customers as well, which I'm, I'm really excited about. And I think that the future of our industry really does feel bright right now. And if you're not already in it because it's been perceived as a laggard industry, like we're in this incredible transformation curve. And I think it couldn't be a better time to join PropTech. Well, let's end up, end up here with a couple of rapid fire questions. Um, I'm going to hit you first here with the most exciting project you've seen in the last year. So for us, it would be a voice of customer. We are listening to phone calls in real time, transcribing them into text. And within about a minute, we're listening to those phone calls and telling our customers what happened on those calls so they can harness that data to improve marketing or leasing experience or resident retention or even avoid you know massive pitfalls like fair housing. Voice of customer is probably the biggest piece of tech I've ever sat on. And we're still figuring out how to productize it, but it's a really cool technology that we're excited about. That's really cool. And then one book you would recommend to listeners right now? I think this might be controversial because if I recall, you don't love the book, but I really like Good to Great. And Good to Great for me is data-driven. It tells a almost black and white story of why good companies exist, but why great companies can outpace. And I think it really helps you understand the importance of things that I now really believe in, like a highly functioning leadership team. But good to great, if you're in scale-up technology, I do think is worth the read, even though if, even though it can be kind of tough at times. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. No, and, and, and I'm sure there's a ton of listeners that would enjoy that book. So no worries there. Well, listen, Mike, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great to have you as a guest. There's just one more thing to do, and that is to roll out the red carpet for you. Tell the world what you're up to, where they can find you online, and please go ahead and plug your own podcast, which is a great listen as well. Yeah, so I'm probably the easiest find, easiest to find person on LinkedIn, Mike Wilbur, and I'll pretty much guaranteed be at the top with a green background. I do have a website for my podcast. It's called Modern Multifamily. I talk to prop tech and operator leaders across the industry about ways that we can move the industry forward with really focused topics. And I just released my 43rd uh, episode. And you can find that website at modernmultifamily.fm. And aside from that, ping me and I'll give you my cell phone number. <laughs> Take them up on that, everybody. So everyone give, give Mike a shout at that. Get those digits. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, for all the listeners, we all have a, a pretty exhaustive show notes list as well. So click any of those links, find Mike, connect with Mike, ask him a few questions. He's a great guy for it. Mike, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic the full-service brand and digital marketing studio that specializes in real estate development and leasing. Visit us online at AuthenticFF.com. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash podcast or simply subscribe to your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.